Welcome to the Community of Hope Church podcast. Our church exists to interest disinterested people in Jesus Christ and then grow together into fully devoted followers of Him. So wherever you are, we hope you find this message helpful, practical, and applicable to your life. God bless. So during the Passover feast, the population in Jerusalem would have easily swelled to over a million people. And the word on the street was that Jesus actually was the long-awaited Messiah. He was the king they had been waiting for, only not in the way that Jesus meant. And so really, all this started out as a simple case of mistaken identity. They thought him to be a king that would lead a rebellion, a rebellion to overthrow Caesar and the Romans. And so they parade Jesus through the streets of the city and people are waving palm branches, which were like flags, symbols of national pride. And they laid their coats down in front of him, which was their way of saying, Lord, we'll lay our lives down for you. And they shouted, Hosanna, which is a word that means save us. You know, the only equivalent we have to something like this in our own world might have been when General Dwight Eisenhower came home after World War II as a national hero and thousands lined the streets just to get a look at him. And as a nation, we honored him with this massive ticker tape parade. But it's interesting, within days of that parade for Jesus, Roman soldiers strip Jesus naked. They spit on him and punch him. They drive a crown of thorns deep into a scalp with wooden rods, and then they flog him. And what flogging involved would have been that Jesus was tied to a wooden post, pulling his skin tight, and with each soldier flanking him on the side, and everything from his shoulder blades to his calves exposed, they would have each taken turns whipping him with short strips of leather into which was embedded pieces of bone and animal teeth and rock. Disturbingly, the goal of flogging was to expose the spine of the victim. One early historian by the name of Tacitus wrote that of the 10 men flogged in this fashion, six would die, never making it to what came next, Roman crucifixion. You know, when the crowds begin to see Jesus in this condition, I believe their instincts take over and they begin to do what they'd probably done before and would do again. They yelled at the convicted, crucify him. But I can imagine that for Jesus, this had to be such a study in contrast. I mean, such a vivid picture of the depths of human hypocrisy. In one setting, they yelled, save us, and in the other setting, they yelled, crucify him. It's interesting to consider that on this side of religious history, what they didn't know, what they couldn't have known, is that they couldn't really have one without the other. I mean, in order for them to be saved, Jesus had to be crucified. In order for him to be a king, he had to be made like a criminal. Before there could be a resurrection, there had to be a crucifixion. Before we could receive life, there had to be a death. So the soldiers eventually tie a 75-pound piece of wood known as a patibulum to Jesus' bloody back, and they march him outside the city to a place known as the Skull, which was an area outside the city wall that Rome had commissioned for this kind of work. It was really just a trash heap for the city. And once there, they forced Jesus to lie down on the patibulum, the crossbeam, if you will, and Like our rules in soccer, where the Greek word hand implied anything from the tip of the elbow to the tip of the finger, Roman soldiers nailed Jesus to the cross with six-inch spikes. And whereas the bones in your wrist can hold the weight of your body, it's more than likely that this is where Jesus was nailed to the cross. 
And then after driving similar spikes into the sides of his ankles, Jesus was hoisted up into the air by the Roman guards designated for this kind of bloody work. And he and the cross were violently dropped into the hole created to receive it. Now, once this was carried out on all the criminals slated to be executed, and we know of three on this particular day, the Roman soldiers eventually make their way back to Jesus and they give him a substance known as gall which was an anesthetic meant to numb the pain. And what I don't want you to miss is that history records that Jesus refused it. He refused it, I believe, so he could understand the heartache and the pain that we go through in this world. So history records that Jesus said seven different things from the cross, but arguably the most haunting were his last words. It's recorded that near the end of his life, he looks up and speaks to the heavens and he says, out loud, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which translated means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And the answer to that question is, well, because he loves you and he loves me. We might say the father abandoned Jesus in that moment so that we could be adopted. We might say God abandoned one son so that he could embrace billions of other sons and daughters. And I believe we could spend the rest of our lives trying to understand and come to terms with what all of that might mean for us. And then Jesus died. The baby born of a virgin, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, the prince of peace, he was no more. One writer says it this way, Satan danced while the world wept. And for three long days, silence. So when we left the story, we saw Jesus unjustly accused, falsely tried, unfairly convicted, and brutally executed for his supposed high crimes against Rome. In some ways, it began for them as a simple case of mistaken identity. And one thing that ancient Rome was not was kind. In fact, it worked overtime to silence and subdue any faction, group, or person perceived as a potential threat. And while it's hard to imagine that now a crucified leader of a ragtag group of nomadic followers is any threat, this was Rome. And as we've said before, humility and self-sacrifice wasn't a virtue in the ancient world. And so it would have been hard to look at the life of Jesus right after his crucifixion and see it as anything but a complete and total failure. And even though the disciples had witnessed Jesus do incredible things while he was alive, and they wanted to believe the fantastic things he said, my guess is it would have been hard. And my sense would be that all of their hopes began to fade in those silent and painful days immediately following the crucifixion. In fact, my understanding is that most likely the town under Jerus- uh, of Jerusalem under Rome's thumb would have picked up and carried on much like they had become accustomed to doing prior to the death of Jesus. Just blind allegiance to religious duty. And while you're at it, hey, stay out of the way of Pax Romana. In fact, we can see this idea kind of woven into the text we just heard. The disciples did what all of us do. They returned to the tomb to grieve their fallen leader and their friend. Still today, right? People gather at a memorial marker, a gravestone, an accident site, or a favorite place of a loved one lost. They gather to remember and to grieve and to comfort one another. But here's one thing they don't do. They don't gather with the expectation of finding their loved one absent from the grave but more on that in a moment. You know, all we've talked about to this point, it could be easily and historically verified, which makes what happens next even all the more strange. Many of us are familiar with the first 10 verses of the 28th chapter of Matthew, the tax collector's account. What's less familiar, of course, 
are those next five verses. And Matthew's gospel is the only one to include them. I've said before that each of the gospel writers tell the story unique to their own experience, and true of anyone really who witnesses something incredible. Mark wrote the oldest account of the life of Christ, which means it's likely to be the one thought to be closest to the timing of the actual event of the resurrection. Luke, a physician and the only Gentile writer, gives us a kind of thorough detail we'd expect from a physician with a keen mind to remember important components of the storyline. John, John was the only writer to escape martyrdom for his faith as Rome worked overtime to crush and extinguish the story of this Jewish carpenter. But Matthew's gospel, Matthew was a Jewish convert, someone whose own life was radically changed by Jesus Christ, and he sought to verify for his kin and for his race all the historical underpinnings to help them come to the same conclusions he had reached. Jesus was the Messiah, though not the kind meant to overthrow Rome. His Messiahship was something greater than this. And with this knowledge, it's easy to see why he'd include a key detail in his count the others didn't think is important. It's a detail that began at least as something meant for the Jewish audience, but Matthew considered something much more than this. What happened to Jesus was a crime, yeah, though perhaps not the one you might think. It might have begun as a simple case of mistaken identity, but it grew into something really resembling a crime of passion. So listen to what Matthew writes next. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. And when the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. So I love how Matthew tells us this part. It's high drama. So the women are on their way back to report to the disciples what they'd witnessed. And here's what they'd witnessed. A moved boulder, an empty tomb, and a guy that seemed to glow in the dark telling them that Jesus wasn't there. In fact, he wasn't only not there. He wasn't dead either. And Luke's gospel gives us some insight here because he records not so much about the women's exit from the tomb as much as about their report at the end of their journey back with the disciples. It's Luke's contribution here that helps us. And he writes in chapter 24, verse 11 of his account that they didn't believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Sometimes faith can appear that way upon first hearing. You know, modern apologists point to this very thing as a sign of the veracity of the resurrection accounts. I mean, women, only viewed as property of men and completely unreliable witnesses, carrying absolutely no legal standing, wouldn't actually be thought of as good character witnesses in a crime scene against Rome. It's this undeniable fact woven into the story of the resurrection that scholars like to point to as a sign of fact. Nobody would use a woman's testimony back then to build a compelling case, especially a case of this magnitude. And exactly while this is going on, in another part of town, soldiers are wringing their hands, putting their minds together to come up with a way to get out of the trouble that they found themselves in. These were the soldiers entrusted with the responsibility to make sure Jesus stayed in the tomb. You know, 
something that's usually a fairly routine responsibility with a reliable outcome, especially when someone is dead. But Jesus carried around with him a lot of controversy. He said things that pushed against the rules-based religion of the day. And often, when either the Roman side or the religious side had tried to pin him down, they couldn't do it. So on the one side, he'd seem to follow all the Roman rules. I mean, he even said one time to render unto Caesar what belonged to Caesar and to render unto God what belonged to God. But he made Rome queasy. And on the other side, the religious side, he spoke of a religion of the heart, a religion that pressed past the rules keeping for rules keeping sake. And he spoke of God first as though he knew God personally, and then eventually as though he was God. And during his made-up trial, when bluntly asked if he was God and thought himself to be God, he would answer the words that no doubt drew a line in the sand. He said, I am. The same words that God spoke to Moses. Yep, they'd better make doubly sure he stayed in the grave. And when he didn't, well, they did the only thing they knew to do, cover it up somehow. And so get this, Rome and the religious leaders conspire together and they come up with a plan, or as Matthew wrote it, the chief priests met with the elders and devise a plan. So in one way, it seemed like a simple case of mistaken identity, but grew into something really more like an actual crime of passion. And you know, the one thing all crimes of passion have in common, convenience, opportunity, and impatience. Someone I know says it this way, crimes of passion are permanent solutions to temporary problems. And you know what I've come to believe? They still happen today, which brings us to this moment and to this present Easter. For the follower of Jesus, Easter is the single most important day of our faith in the entire year. Everything we've hoped for, believe in, have come to understand about our faith finds its culmination in the fact of an empty tomb. Our faith doesn't begin in a book. It begins in an event. Yeah, I see all the time people making decisions about their faith and impatience, and that is a crime. In fact, when this happens, I think it usually happens as a combination of three things. One, never considering all the evidence. You know, I talk to people all the time that profess faith, and yet they've never really seriously considered all the evidence for the faith that they say they own. And when difficulty in life comes, not if, but when, that kind of faith that isn't seriously considered, well, it gets bumped around. In John's gospel, in chapter 20, verses 8 and 9, he writes this, Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, he went in and investigated. He saw and believed. They still didn't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. And even Thomas, who we remember, you know, as the doubter, when he was given the opportunity to examine the evidence literally standing right in front of him, he declared, Jesus to be both his Lord and his God. There's this powerful response in that moment that Jesus gives that I think is meant for people like you and me. It says that when Jesus told them, because you've seen me and believe, Thomas, you're blessed, but blessed are those who have not yet seen and believed. Paul the apostle put it this way. He said in his own language, he said, you know, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. That's the first thing. Another thing I see is sometimes failing to take the responsibility to grow our own faith. 
Paul wrote in one of my favorite verses of scripture, he says, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, you continue to live in him, live your lives in him, become rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, learning to overflow with thankfulness and with gratitude. And then lastly, of course, I think sometimes we don't look at the right information. There's lots of ideas out there, both inside and outside the church. And to be honest, not all of them are great. So one time when Peter, the disciple who saw this in his day, he wrote about it and he, and this is what he said. He said, for we did not follow the cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Imagine, he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came from him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. You know, in my view, the greatest crime of passion would be for you to miss an opportunity on this Easter, on this day, when we celebrate the most important moment of the Christian faith, for you to, in a crime of passion, fail to look at all the evidence, not step in to grow your own faith, continue to look at the wrong information, when God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, is revealing himself in this moment to you. So as I close this time, what I want to do is I want to pray for you and pray that God would use this moment in your life to move you in your relationship toward this King of glory. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray right now in your precious name that you would give all of us a desire, a renewed desire for those of us who've knocked around church for a length of time, for those of us for whom this is completely new, Lord, would you kindle within us a desire to know you, to know the real you. And Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, as we are reaching toward you, would you reach back toward us and use this important day, use this important moment so that we might come to a deeper understanding, not only of who you are, but all you've accomplished simply because you love us. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen.